So as we're, we're actually getting close to wrapping up uh, the book of Mark, it's been since August 2020. So we're, we're pushing up into a year and a half or so. Uh, and I've had a great time. I assume you all have as well. I'll take your silence to mean that. Um, but as we've been working up through, we, we find ourselves now uh, on the day that Jesus will be crucified. What do we call that day? We, re- we remember it every single year. What do we call it? What do you think they called it on that Good Friday? Do you think any of the disciples were going, what a great day? It's kind of a long view of things to be able to call that Good Friday. Because actually the things that we read about are tragedy after tragedy, betrayal, abandonment, uh, wrongful imprisonment. I mean, all of these different things. We know the end of the story, and so we're able to say, what a good Friday. But I'm going to ask you, as we read through this, to kind of suspend some of that. Sometimes we know the end of the story, and so we skip over some of the details in the middle. But again, part of what we're doing as we read through the book of Mark is to actually try to put yourself in the story. What if I didn't know that this has a happy ending? What if I, what if I wasn't aware of the twist that God was about to put on things? I was simply just looking at what was happening. What would you have been experiencing? If you were one of the disciples taking out the the whole resurrection and the stuff that they didn't know was going to happen yet, they should have, but they didn't, we all would have abandoned Jesus. We all would have gone, oh my goodness, this is too much. This is crazy. This is not what I expected. And we all would have turned tail and run. Maybe you're Peter who's kind of following at a distance or John who was also able to kind of be there and see some of what was happening. What would you have experienced in those times. So we found ourselves where Jesus was just abandoned by all his disciples in the garden. They've all turned tail and run, and he's been bound, and he's been taken before this mock trial that happens in the middle of the night illegally. He's found guilty for saying, I am the Messiah. They they tear their clothes, which is the sign of like, I'm offended on God's behalf. And they begin to mock and beat him. And then we find ourselves in in Mark 15. As soon as it was morning, they had to put some kind of rubber stamp on this whole thing. They had to have some kind of legal proceedings to it. So as soon as it was morning, the chief priests had a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin. Okay, we've already done the business. They've already been punishing him for hours at this point in time. They've already decided he's guilty but we got to go through the motions. So as soon as the sun comes up, they get everybody together to go, he's guilty, yeah? Yeah, okay, let's go. So don't have in your head anywhere that this was some kind of like real trial. All of this happened kind of behind closed doors and shady circumstances. So that morning they get together to rubber stamp it. See, we went by the rules. We did it legally. And after tying Jesus up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate. They would bring him to Pilate, and we find in some of the other gospel accounts, Mark gives a pretty abbreviated one, that they come to Pilate, and Pilate's going, what? Why did you bring him here? And they say, we brought him here because we're not allowed to execute someone. You have to do that. Let me ask you this question. Is that true? For those of you that know the Bible, think of Acts chapter 7. There's something that happens in Acts chapter 7. A guy named Stephen. What happens to Stephen? They drag him outside the city and stone him to death. Did they take him to Pilate? Did they? Here's the thing to understand. The Pharisees have no problem killing people. 
They have no problem deciding you're guilty and you need to die. What was their problem with Jesus? Why would they take him to Pilate and make Pilate kill him? What do you think? Jesus was popular with the people. We know that those within Jerusalem, we're going to read the passage here in a minute, where, where the crowd in Jerusalem turns on Jesus. The Hosanna mob becomes the crucify him mob. We're going to read about that here in a second. But all outside of Jerusalem, Jesus is that good teacher who heals our sick and sometimes feeds us. The, the populace loved Jesus, and the Pharisees knew this, and they thought if we stone him to death, we're going to have questions to answer that we'd rather not answer. But if we can get Pilate to kill him, anything Pilate does, the people are going to disagree with. It's going to be, oh, Rome and that stuff they do. And the Pharisees are going to be able to go, oh, Rome killed him. Oh, man. Like, and so all of this is kind of political maneuvering. They could have that night killed Jesus and there wouldn't have really been any backlash. Again, as we read through in the book of Acts, we see them doing this. And there's zero backlash. Rome does not care one bit. The whole reason of bringing Jesus to Pilate was political maneuvering. Let's see if we can get Pilate to be the ax man so that we can wash our hands and go, we don't know what happened. So they bring him to Pilate. They go through this whole thing where they start shouting all of these accusations at Jesus and they're, they're accusing him of all this different stuff. And Jesus is just stonewalling. He's just standing silent, probably already bruised and beaten, bloody, and he's just standing silent. Doesn't answer a single accusation that's coming against them. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you have said it. And the chief priests began to accuse him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, are you not answering anything? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer anything. So Pilate was amazed. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I just want to come back to it again. Look at the incredible faith of Jesus demonstrated through his unwillingness to defend himself. Think of how difficult it would be. Jesus is now in like hour 8, 9, 10 of being beaten for things he didn't do, being accused of things he never said, and now they've got as big a crowd together as they can, and they have an actual judge with actual power right there, and they start lobbing these accusations at him. And the kind of accusations they were making up is he's been raising up a mob against Rome. He's been saying that Caesar isn't king. Is any of this true? No, Jesus had never said that. Imagine how difficult it would be to have your name dragged through the mud, knowing where this could lead, but having enough faith in the Lord to go, you defend me. Your will be done. I'm just going to sit here silent. You're going to do a better job of defending me than I could ever do myself, so I'm just going to stay silent. Imagine the incredible faith it would take if you and I were in Jesus' situation to hold your tongue. Pretty quickly, I'd get to the point of going, these guys can't even agree with each other. Who's listening to? And I would start defending myself. And here's the thing. Eventually, they'd catch me in something. I'd defend a little too hard, and they would go, oh, see? They'd find something. And Jesus refused to do that. He trusted the Lord enough where he said, my father's in control. I don't need to defend myself. In John's 
telling of this story, the crowd starts getting into this uproar and they start kind of turning into a bit of a violent mob. And so uh, eventually Pilate brings Jesus inside and he said he went back into the headquarters and he asked Jesus, where are you from? Like he couldn't get anything out of Jesus. Where are you even from? But Jesus did not give an answer. So Pilate said to him, you're not talking to me? Like, do you know who I am? You dare not even talk to me? How stupid are you that you would stonewall me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? We use this term, oh, they're going to get crucified and kind of like a, people aren't going to like them very much. Uh, things aren't going to go their way. Pilate was like, no, 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 you walked in the streets to get here. And there was literally, the streets were lined with rows of people being crucified, criminals. I have the power to do that to you. You better answer me. This is what Pilate's bringing to him. And Jesus' response, you would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it had not been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment on, Pilate made every effort to release him. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Side note, real quick. When being right is your only goal, you will say things now that you will regret later. The the Jews, actually, they were so like, we have to just kill Jesus, whatever the cost, that they're actually now on the side of going, Caesar's our king. Anyone who sets himself up against Caesar should die. What were the Jews known for? Rebelling against Caesar. We, when, when being right is our only goal, we will say things now that we regret later. We will be in such a hurry to win the argument, to, to trump the other person, to overcome them. We will regret it. it. It never leads to, I'm proud of everything I said and did then. That does not happen. The, the, the Jewish leaders right now are arguing on Caesar's side because all they care about is we got to overcome Jesus. But back to Pilate and Jesus. Pilate threatening Jesus, do you know who I am? Do you know what I can do to you? And what's Jesus' defense? You would have no authority at all if my father hadn't given it to you. Do what you got to do. My father is in control. Pilate railing, answer me, I'm in control. Jesus sees right through it. I know the one who's truly in control, and I'm going to trust him. And from that moment on, it says that Pilate began to do everything he could to set Jesus free. The way that Jesus conducted himself, the faith that he put on display to stand tall in the face of all of this, again, already beaten and bloodied, but to refuse to even answer. This mob is kind of, it's, when I say it's beneath him, I don't mean like Jesus was proud and arrogant, but he went, I know who's in control and I'm just going to keep my eyes fixed there. I'm not going to get caught up in all of this down here. And he just stood. But Jesus still did not answer anything. So Pilate was amazed. Think of how many times, even just in the book of Mark, we've read where the people were astonished with Jesus. They were amazed by him, by the miracles that he did, by his teaching, by his authority. Pilate amazed by his silence But let me tell you this, being amazed at Jesus isn't enough. Thinking well of Jesus isn't what he's after. There are many today who will go, Jesus, oh, what a great moral teacher. 
What, what a great man. And they think that's enough to, to kind of respect him and go, yeah, we should listen to some of what he says. That has never been what Jesus is after. And we have to be careful as a church. Sometimes that's what we put out there. But think of the teachings of Jesus. And it's all about Jesus' teachings. And he was right into what he taught. He was. But Jesus was never after people to just agree with his teachings. To give him a thumbs up. To like him on Facebook and put a bumper sticker on their car. Yeah, Jesus. He, he was pretty cool. Jesus has never been after fans. The people were continually impressed with him only to go back to life as usual when Jesus moved on to the next town, when Jesus taught something that was too difficult. They all just went back to life as usual, but they were astonished by him. Oh, well, back to work. Life wasn't actually changed. Nothing was transformed. They didn't actually follow him anywhere. They heard some teachings. They nodded their head. I hope my neighbor's listening to that. And then they went home unchanged. Again, the, the, the Hosanna mob five days ago in Jesus' life, five days before where we are now, the same crowd that is at his trial before Pilate is actually lining the streets crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the one who comes in the name of the Lord, taking off their jackets and putting it down so that his donkey wouldn't even touch the dirt. This is our guy. I love this guy. I, I heard he was coming to town. I can't wait to see this guy. Hosanna, Hosanna. Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again, they shouted, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted, crucify him. All the more. Same people. Astonished, loved him, praising his names in the streets. It only went so far. Even Pilate. We've skipped over the story of Barabbas. We're going to come back to it here in a second. But Pilate, who was amazed at Jesus, 10 verses later, then, willing to gratify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flog, flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate believes what Jesus says is true. He's an innocent man. He, he hasn't done all of the horrible things that, are, that he's being accused of. I believe that what Jesus is saying is true. He's amazed by him. He respects him. And he hands him over to be tortured and killed. Being a fan of Jesus, thinking well of Jesus, being amazed by his teachings is not enough. It doesn't cut it. It only goes so far. So Pilate hands him over to be flogged. If you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, most people in here or in every single gospel presentation, it just says, and he was flogged. But that flogging, being whipped literally within an inch of his life. They would put these metal ball bearings on the end of the whip to break bones and to give like these deep contusions and these jagged spikes to literally rip away flesh. It's said that when, when you were done being flogged like this, there was literally ribbons of flesh hanging off. Gross, ugly stuff. Don't think like, oh, he was just beat up a little bit. He was whipped within an inch of his life and then sent off to be crucified by the very man that was amazed by him, believed him, respected him. 
Back to uh, the, the piece that we skipped over here. In verse six, at the festival, it was Pilate's custom to release for the people a prisoner they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in the prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. So Pilate answered them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew that it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas instead. You can see Pilate maneuvering here. He liked Jesus. It already said in John, he was trying to set Jesus free at this point. He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows that it's just the chief priests envy this guy. They want his following. They want his popularity, his fame. And so he knows this is all a political maneuver. And so he goes, let me put it to him then. He had this custom where he would always release one prisoner to them. This was their uh, day of atonement kind of thing. And so they were all celebrating. And he'd say, I'll give you one prisoner. He's killed thousands that year, but I'll give you one back because I'm such a good guy. And so he goes, I think I can use this to my benefit. There's this Jesus who everybody here knows is innocent, who already looks rough. He's had quite a day. And then I'm going to bring out Barabbas, this traitor. When it talks about a rebellion, the literal translation there would be terrorist. He's a murderer. I'll put him up against this Jesus and go, who do you really want me to let go? This guy that all he's done is claim to be king of the Jews or this known murderer and terrorist? Pilate's again thinking, maybe I can get them to do the hard work for me. They're going to look at these two and there's no way they can say, give us Barabbas. There's no way the crowd is going to do that. Of course, they call his bluff. But here's the thing about Pilate. It said in John, Pilate was doing everything he could to see Jesus released. Pilate is maneuvering some of these things, but it's all half-hearted. Pilate is very aware, I believe, from the beginning. He wants to do the right thing, but only as long as it doesn't cost him anything. I like this Jesus guy. I want to help this Jesus guy unless it costs me something. Then I'm out on this Jesus guy. I'll actually become part of the mob and sentence him to death. Being a fan of Jesus won't get you where he wants you to be. It is not what you have been called to. It is not what he desires from you. He doesn't need fans. He doesn't need people that like his teachings but aren't willing to follow if it costs too much. People that believe that what he says is true, but believe that what they feel is even more true. That what's valuable to me wins. That is not following Jesus. We see that all throughout the gospel accounts, and every one of those people turn on him eventually. Just being his fan, just thinking what he says is good stuff, is not going to get you anywhere. We see in Barabbas, in this whole account here, Jesus' entire cross ministry, everything that he came to do on the cross, we see it summed up. Barabbas, the, the name Barabbas, 
Back then, all of their names actually meant something. There wasn't just John. I mean, there was, but John actually meant something. John now is just like, I don't know, it's just John. But Barabbas actually meant son of the father. And so here we see the son of the father imprisoned, kept away from his father, sentenced to die. And what does Jesus do? He exchanges places with him. He takes the place of Barabbas so that Barabbas can be set free. You have to imagine that Barabbas wanted to go home to his father. And we see Jesus trading places with him so that Barabbas would be set free. I think of Luke chapter four. There's a time where Jesus is in the synagogue. He went to the synagogue every Saturday like every good Jewish boy and girl. And there's one time he gets called on to do the daily reading. And so they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. It wasn't like a whole Bible and he could flip to whatever he wanted. Here's our daily reading and it's in a scroll. Good luck. Hopefully it's something good. And Jesus reads this out to them. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the free, or excuse me, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you ever want to do a really interesting study sometime, study the year of the Lord's favor. It's also called the year of Jubilee when every slave was set free, when everyone's land that had been taken from them, bought from them, it had to be returned. It was a year of just celebration. It's, it's a really cool study, especially when you look at then the kingdom of God and how it operates. But I don't want to get too far off a tangent. Jesus has come. He's been anointed, filled with power by the Lord to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for captives, recovery of sight for blind, to set free the oppressed and proclaim the years of the Lord's favor. Jesus was proclaiming his purpose, his entire purpose for coming in that reading from the book of Isaiah. Often when we hear this passage, we think of the captive as someone uh, who's been wrongfully imprisoned. Jesus has come to free those that were kind of like unjustly uh, put behind bars. We think of a situation like Jesus was in, wrongfully imprisoned, wrongfully accused, wrongfully punished. And we kind of tell this, this noble tale of Jesus coming to exchange himself with this innocent man wrongfully imprisoned. Jesus is correcting some big cosmic injustice by freeing good people from jail kind of idea. Perhaps somebody was duped into committing a crime. They didn't really mean to do it, but they were kind of tricked into it. And Jesus has come to set those people free this could not be further from the truth of why Jesus came. We are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. Guilty as sin. Caught red-handed. Rightfully imprisoned. Accused of things that we are actually guilty of. And destined for punishment that we actually deserve. This is not some tale of, man, we were so good. I was like 95% there, and Jesus just gave me that last 5% bump. I am Barabbas. I'm a traitor. I'm a liar. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. Jesus has said, if you even look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you're an adulterer. If you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're a murderer. 
Every one of us, if we're honest, if we're truly honest with ourselves, we're Barabbas. And we were caught red-handed, and we deserve everything that is coming to us. None of us were good enough. None of us were almost there. None of us didn't do anything wrong. We just didn't know any better. The word says that God seared our consciences so that we would know. Even when we were kids, we knew enough to hide it. We knew enough to lie about it, to try to cover it up, to hope nobody asked about it. We knew it was wrong from the very beginning. And we're guilty of it. But like Barabbas, thankfully, Jesus didn't come for those who almost had it and just needed a little push. Brian read earlier, Jesus said, look, it's the sick that need the doctor. Those that are convinced they're healthy, they're not even going to come asking, and they're not going to find But those that admit that they're sick, they see their need for the doctor and they're going to find healing. This morning, some some of us in here have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Some of you longer than I've been alive. And we have this way sometime of revising history and going, I wasn't that bad. Or here's what we often do. We look at somebody else's situation around us and we go, ooh, that's bad. That's broken. That's dark. And I've talked with some of you, and I know my own thoughts. There's times when we go, that's too dark for Jesus to fix. That's too broken. That person's situation, how could God ever work there? Maybe we don't say it out loud because we know better, but that's the thought. They're too much like Barabbas. No way could God ever fix that. We were Barabbas. Some of you in here today still are. Maybe you got everybody fooled. I don't know. We're guilty, deserving of punishment. But Jesus has come to exchange places with us, to set us free at the cost of his own imprisonment, to give us life at the cost of his own death. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talking to the church who kind of forgot where they came from. They would now, in, in Ephesus, they were starting to look at all of those around them that weren't part of the church and going, ew, Ooh, look at what they're doing. Oh, they're hopeless over there. And so Paul decides it's time to remind them where they came from. And so he starts Ephesians chapter two like this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Let me sum up. You were dead in your sins and you were under the power of Satan. He had complete authority in your life. Sin gripped you. And you were chained to it. We too, Paul saying, hey, those that have come with me, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, punishment, intense anger, as the others were also. Don't forget where you came from, church. You were just like them. You were just as chained and imprisoned by your sin under the authority of the enemy and unable to help yourself as the worst sinner that you can find today. He goes on later in that chapter and he says, at that time you were without the Messiah, excluded from citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Listen to this, without hope and without God in the world. You didn't stand a chance. You were lost as lost could be. Left to your own devices, 
you were destined for hell. You could not save yourself. You were without hope. Not a chance in the world. You were dead in your sin and in your trespasses. In verse four, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with the Messiah. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. Even though, even at the time when you were dead, hopeless, not a chance, he poured out his grace on you, his unmerited favor, the stuff that you've been longing for but you could never earn. Given an entire lifetime, you couldn't stack up enough good. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, not because you earned it, he made us alive with the Messiah. Romans 5, Paul says it like this, but God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were Barabbas, caught in our sin. I think of the woman caught in adultery who's brought to Jesus. Remember that time and then Jesus started throwing stones at her? Do you remember that? No. Tricked some of you for a second. They brought her to Jesus and they go, we literally caught her in the act. I don't know how awkward of a situation that would be. We caught her in adultery and we dragged her out here. You can imagine she's probably trying to cover herself with whatever blankets she could pull off the bed and she's dragged out and this circle of men come around her all carrying rocks and they decide to test Jesus and they go, what should we do? And Jesus says, let the one who has no sin be the first to cast the stone. All of them start feeling conviction. They all start going, you know, there's times I should have been stoned to death. There's times that if somebody really knew what was going on, I'd be dead. And it says they all drop their stones and they walk away. Jesus helps her to her feet. And she says, well, what about you? Jesus says, Where, where's all your accusers gone? She says, they, they left. He says, neither do I condemn you either. What had that woman done to deserve the grace that Jesus poured out on her, to deserve forgiveness? Nothing. She was laying there in a pile on the floor waiting to be stoned to death. But God's grace and mercy for her, his love for her, bridged the gap. And it's the same way with us. For if, in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having reconciled, will be saved by his life? If, while we were pretty good, but not quite good enough, no, we were actively fighting against the kingdom of God. While we were in our sin, we were actively living treasonous, rebellious lifestyles, setting ourselves up as his enemies. And how did he treat his enemies? He traded places with us. It's called the great exchange. His death gives me life. He takes all of my sin on himself, and we're going to discuss this more next week. And all of his righteousness, he puts on me. This is how God deals with his enemies. Some of us just need to be reminded of this ourselves. You came to Jesus and it was so long ago, you've kind of forgotten where you came from. Or it's a story you've told so many times, you kind of forget the power of it. Some of you need to be reminded of it because you're walking through some stuff right now. 
And is his grace still enough? Is his mercy still enough? If while you were his enemy, he was willing to pour out love and grace, he was willing to pave the way for you to come back, how much more, having been reconciled, will he save us by his life? How much more grace and mercy for those of us who are already adopted into the family? But if you're here this morning and you're a fan of Jesus, you like him. You even come to church pretty regularly. You've picked up your Bible. You've cracked it a couple times. You might even put something in the offering box back there. But in your heart, you know there's a line. If he asks you to go too far, you're out. If following him costs you too much, you're not interested. If that's where you are, my, my plea with you today is repent. Turn. The word repentance literally means a 180 degree turn. I turn from going my own way, from walking into sin, and I turn back to him. If you're here this morning again, you may have me completely fooled. You, you can talk the talk and, and it's easy when you're out there and I'm up here, I'll never know. But if you're here this morning and you know, if you hear the things I'm talking about and there's something in you that goes, that's not where I am, repent. Turn. Lord, what you want for me is more important than what I want for me. Not only do I just believe, yeah, you were a good teacher, I actually want to place my life on your teachings. I believe it enough that there's, no, there's nothing I wouldn't go through if it's what you called me to. There's no place I wouldn't go. There's no cost I wouldn't pay to follow you where you're leading me. This is truly what it means to be a Christian. If you've been you know, told that, yeah, it's just, you're a sinner, pray this prayer, now you're good. Jesus, again, wasn't going, hey, everyone, pray the sinner's prayer and you're fine. He said, follow me. Walk with me. Become like me. Go where I go. Do what I do. Follow me. Following Jesus has a cost. He told us so himself. If you have in your mind this thing that that would cost too much, I wouldn't follow him there. I challenge you, repent. Put your faith in him, in his goodness, in his provision. Like Jesus standing there knowing the cross is coming, but my God is better. My God will use even this for good. Even though Jesus, like I might die, but if that's what my God calls me to, then it's for my good. No half-hearted repentance will do. We can't stand in the middle and go, Jesus is good, but I kind of want to do me too. It's all or nothing. That's the only option left open to us. Who is king, him or you? Answering that question will answer a lot for you. For those of us here this morning that, that are more than fans, for those of us that have been following Jesus for a day, for decades, for those that have given their lives to Jesus because of what he has done, you have been reconciled to the Father. And I read this from Colossians chapter 2. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. There's another translation that says, in the same way you received him, so now walk in him. How did we receive Jesus? Was it by working real hard? It was by faith, 
through grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, or 8 and 9, excuse me. By faith through grace. And he says, now, in the same way, walk in it. By faith in what? What he's done for me. We kind of have this thing where we go, yeah, 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 salvation is by faith. And that happened when I was 10 at church camp. But now it's all about me working hard. And, and me earning it from him. And Paul says, in the same way you received it, continue to live in it. Many of us, we, we take the cross, we take this Good Friday, we take this exchange that Jesus has made, just like he did with Barabbas, and we put it on a shelf of that was nice. I can tell you the date that that meant something to me, but since then, I don't really think about it. The way that we are called to live is every day waking up and going, Jesus, I'm Barabbas again. I, I know me, and I'll revert back to I want to be king. Do I want to do things my way? Jesus, I need for you to change places with me again. Not only in a forgive me of my sin, but also, Jesus, I need your righteousness today. I need your power today. I need to hear from you today so that I know which way to go. Otherwise, I know it. I'm just going to follow myself again. And I know where that leads me. I've been in that cell before. We need to continually appropriate what Jesus has done on the cross. It's not a story we tell about that one time that we received it. What does the cross mean to you today? What, what does Jesus trading places with you, how does that affect you today? One year in, 10 years in, 40 years in, how is what he did for you continuing to affect your lives? Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. And I'm going to end with this. Again, I've mentioned it before, but it's something I need to hear again. For those of us that have been walking with Jesus, be very careful of your pride. We start to feel like I've got it together, and if people could just be more like me, and if they're not more like me, they're too far away. Why bother? Why would I share with that person at work? I already know how they're going to respond. Why would I even share with that family member? Their situation is so broken that well, I'm going to tell them, hey, Jesus loves you. Like, what good is that going to do? This is the kind of stuff that starts to seep in and going, the news that Jesus loved me changed my entire life. When I was his enemy, when I was far from him, when I was actively rebelling against him, his love for me changed everything. And now I've been given the good news. Just as Jesus said in Luke chapter four, his mission is the same for all of us. The spirit of the Lord is on you because he has anointed you to preach good news to the poor. He has sent you to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You have been given the very same mission as Jesus, the very same message and power and anointing as Jesus. Don't fall into the thinking that they're too broke, they're too far. I already know how they would respond. To follow Jesus is to live on mission with Jesus. Every day, not only saying thank you for what you've done for me and how it affects my life today, who else needs it, Lord? I'm going to read this one more time and then we'll pray. Put yourself in here. The spirit of the Lord is on me 
because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Lord Jesus, we are all at different places in this room. Lord, some may be far from you and hiding it pretty well. Would you, through your loving conviction, show them where their current path leads? Show them where this imprisonment leads, where where them being in control leads, that they would repent and fix their eyes on you, that they would truly surrender and become not a fan but a follower of Jesus. Lord, for those of us who have been following Jesus for any length of time, may we never forget that was not something you did that one time, but every day, May we wake up to the realization that he died for me today. He traded places with me today. He wants to live through me today. And may we go on mission with you, empowered by you with the same call that you had. Give us eyes to see, God, the poor that need the good news, the captive that needs freedom proclaimed, the blind that needs sight, the oppressed that needs set free. May we live and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, I pray. May you move in us, through us, around us. Thank you for this great exchange on my behalf, God. I praise you, Lord. Make me more like you. In Jesus' name. Amen.